Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by WitchSchool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Thank you for tuning in today. I am Michael Greywolf, artist, traveler, all-around geek, witch, and brother initiate of the Unnamed Path. And I'm Matthew Sidney, writer, musician, uh, initiate and teacher of the Unnamed Path, and student of all things spiritual and non. And thank you for joining us today. (laughs) And you're listening to Walking the Unnamed Path. On this podcast, we talk about uh, what we discuss the teachings and techniques given to us by the ancestors of men who love men and what was laid out by our late founder, Hyperion. We also touch on topics and ideas pertaining to queer pagan men in general. We're glad you've decided to join us, and we hope you'll be part of the show, either by calling in at area code 347-308-8222. You can... If we can get the chat room up and running, we don't have a chat room. Uh, or you can drop us an email at walkingtheendnamepath at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at walking underscore the UP. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash walkingtheendnamepath. Now, Matthew, it has been a minute since you and I have been in the studio together. <laughs> How have you been? I, I know you've had some projects actually go live recently. Yeah, uh, thank you, and it has been a while. I've been doing very well. I've been very busy. So for people who've been keeping up on Facebook, I uh, recently released an EP. It's called Sans Merci. It is uh, just five songs, and I'm excited because it's sort of a comeback. It's been about four years since I released any new tracks, and so it's available on iTunes and Amazon and Spotify, uh, CD Baby, etc. for download. It's five songs. And uh, I would say this material is uh, a little bit more uh, mystical than some of my previous work. And a lot of it is uh, derived from other materials. So, for example, um, it's called Sans Merci because one of the tracks is actually an adaptation of the poem... um, uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and which I basically tweaked the words and, and set to music. Uh, and then there's also, I took the witch's speech from Macbeth and turned that into a little bluesy number, um, lovingly dedicated to Mitch McConnell. And so <laughs> it's kind of different. Yeah, it's kind of a little, a little different than what I normally do. I kind of am pulling material from um, from our culture and um, weaving music around it. So uh, it's a little bit of a departure, but it's very exciting. So it's nice to be doing music again. And the sound's different because I this time I actually did all the recording myself. I didn't uh, hire a studio. I didn't work with um, uh, any other producer or musicians besides myself. I did all the tracks um, solo. So it was, it was risky, but... Um, so far, I've been hearing great things, and and I know over the past year, particularly, I've grown a lot as an artist. So I'm really proud of how far I've come. And then also, uh, I finally 
um, published uh, Sacred Land, a uh, workbook for developing a pagan uh, spiritual ecology. And that's a manuscript that I really wrote a year ago, but I was moved to finally put a bow on it and release it. And basically, it's for witches and shamanic practitioners and neo-pagans. It's about working with the land. It's about working with the spirits of the land. It's um, based on uh, really information that I've received through my work, information I've received from the spirits about how to relate to um, spirits of place, uh, spirits of the land, or even, you know, the spirits of your home, you know, with all the folklore talks about, um, you know, the hobgoblin that, 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 you know, lives in the house, you know, or lives in the barn and, and Harry Potter, we have house elves. Well, well, what does that <laughs> lore come from? You know, it's about our ancestors used to recognize that the house they lived in had a living spirit. And I think there's a wonderful opportunity for us to live that, to recognize as for me as a shamanic practitioner, I see myself as an animist. Everything is alive. So my front door, my doorstep, the kitchen, the, the stove, everything has an energy to it. And what is life like when we start communicating with the consciousness um, within all of those things? And I think there's a wonderful opportunity for us in this modern world to re-enchant the world around us and recognize that these connections are all around. We don't have to run out to the woods in order to have a spiritual experience. You can have that magical connection, um, baking a pie in your kitchen. <laughs> awesome. I, I cannot wait to get a copy of your book. Um, I need to order that like ASAP. <laughs> I've just had so many well, books on you. my lap to read recently. I'm like, oh my gosh, where do I start? <laughs> and what yeah. what have you been up to? You I know you've been doing some traveling. Um especially when uh we interviewed Andrew Raymer. Um yeah. tell us a little bit about your trip. So I so I spent about a week back in Illinois in the area where I was living, uh, I went up there for my boyfriend's wedding. I'm in, you know, those who, you know, follow me on social media know I'm in a polyamorous relationship and I actually performed my uh, boyfriend and his now husband uh, hand fasting. And then they had the legal uh, wedding uh, later in the week, but I performed their hand fasting on the night of the full moon. And Beautiful. They really, they really enjoyed it. Well, it was, it was a bit of a, it was, it was rather tricky. One because, you know, anyone who, you know, does hand fastings regularly, you know, you kind of have to meet with the uh, people who are getting hand fasted, you know, a few times before the wedding to, you know, iron out details, make sure everyone likes everything, and et cetera, et cetera. Didn't do any of that. It was so hard to get three people's schedules to line up that we just we got it all worked out in the first two days I was there. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but like I said, and 
my my uh, friend and co-host on All X Love and Pleasure, uh, Dr. Susan, she gave me a couple of her uh, a couple of hand fat things that she's done. You know, kind of give me an idea on you know how to write it and whatnot because I was trying so hard to get my hands on a copy of um, Raven Caldera's uh, hand fasting book. I couldn't really get it done. Uh, but I was able, you know, I was able to use one of hers as kind of like a template and swapped out stuff that, you know, didn't really pertain to my boyfriend and his uh, husband, you know, put stuff in that was very much part of them. And I let them read it before we went, to, we did the ritual thing to make sure they all liked it. And they were crying while they were reading Aww. it. Wow. So, <laughs> I was like, okay, good. <laughs> At least I know they enjoyed it. <laughs> but yeah, wow. I didn't know well, that's you know. yeah, that's wonderful. <sighs> Congratulations. Thank you. And other than that, I've been busy because I got kind of a large shipment from Llewellyn of books that I had you know, saying I had wanted to do reviews on. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I have all these books to read now. One of one of them being uh, Magic for the Resistance and Storm Fairy Wolf's new book. Um, oh, hell, I can't remember the name now. The Forbidden Fairy something. Oh, what is it? i got to look it up real quick. For- Forbidden Mysteries? Yes, Forbidden Mysteries. Yes, I have that one now, and got to read it and then set up an interview with Storm. Forbidden, Forbidden Mysteries yeah. of Fairy Witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So I got that one. I have, uh, what is it, Queer Magic. Not the one that I had an article in, but the other one with almost the exact same name but came out at almost the exact same time. Got a copy of that to do a review on. <laughs> but yeah, um, I have a busy winter coming up. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, well, uh, winter's a good time for that. And speaking of books, today um, yeah. we're going to be interviewing Casey Giovinco, author of Garbed in Green Gay Witchcraft and the Male Mysteries. Casey is the chief elder of Gala Witchcraft, a coven-based initiatory tradition of witchcraft for gay and bisexual men. In his professional life, Casey helps people integrate spiritual, mental, and physical health as an RYT 200 yoga teacher, a certified consulting hypnotist, and a philosophical consultant. As a philosophical consultant, Casey helps witches and non-witches alike to achieve lasting success in their lives. By combining the skills that he developed as an academic philosopher with the wisdom of the Western mystery traditions, Casey provides a unique approach to problem solving that helps modern pagan people to achieve lasting success in their lives. I'm excited to chat with him about Garbed in Green because I've heard nothing but wonderful things about it. I really feel like it hit at least the queer uh, witch community by storm. There's been a lot of buzz, and I confess that I resisted reading it for a while, and then when I did, I was certainly very glad 
that I did. So let's go ahead and bring Casey on. Hello, Casey. You are live. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Thank back? you for Hello. joining us today. <laughs> We're doing Thank great. You for having me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So, Casey, uh, let me first start by saying, well, first asking, why is the book titled Garbed in Green? Yeah. Okay, so way back in ancient Rome, they used that kind of as a euphemism for gay people. Uh, They didn't want to say, you know, he sleeps with only men. So they would say he's garbed in green, like we might say light in his loafers or use some choice words to describe gay men. And that's really sort of where that came from. Um, over, Over time and throughout history, a lot of different people adopted the green concept for gay men. Uh, most famously, Oscar Wilde was his green carnation. And so over and over and over again, this shows up within gay history, but also just standard history as a, a way of identifying gay men very subtly so that, you know, you didn't have to address the real nitty gritty of it. Mm-hmm. Now, in in Garbed in Green, you touch on your research into the place of queer men as magical and spiritual specialists in many different cultures, especially in ancient times. What, for you, was one of your most surprising discoveries? Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Honestly, the sheer number of cultures that had very similar takes on gay men and the power that we brought to the table who had never met each other. Um, Not just one tribal culture, but almost universally around the world, wherever you had tribal cultures, you also had these specialized roles for gay men or gender fluid people or transgender people. And almost universally, they were differentiated based on, where they fell on that spectrum. And so that was really fascinating to me that not only do we have these wonderful roles for people that today are disenfranchised, but that those roles are distinct and different and still encompass each other and that they don't fight with each other, but they complement each other. That to me was one of the most interesting things about all of the research. Hmm. Can can you give us a couple examples of, um, say, a particular culture and uh, different roles that different spiritual pro- professionals would play? Oh, absolutely. So, like, for example, um, you have the, the Gala priests who I named my tradition after from ancient Mesopotamia and Samaria, and they would embody the goddess then – they would uh, engage in sexual interaction with men from society who would pay the temple. And this gala priest would give them blessings by being intimate with them. Um, Now we don't do that in gala, but it was, it was so pervasive in their culture and these people were accepted and not only accepted, but revered. 
and the powers that they brought to the table and the the benefits that they brought to these people were constantly being glorified in poetry and pottery and all these various different ancient artifacts. Um, in Hawaii, there is something, and forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I've never heard it pronounced as much as I've just seen it written, but I think it's called the Aikane, um, A-I-K-A-N-E. And the Aikane are these, these wonderful gay men who serve almost like courtesans to the chiefs of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And they're not looked down on at all. In fact, they're really very highly respected. And in giving their affections to the chief, they often become a chief themselves. So they hold a lot of power within the tribe, but they're also viewed as advisors and wise men within the tribe. Some of them have even gone on to become actual chiefs. And many of them had lovers outside of their relationships with the chieftain of the tribe. Um, And then you have various different ones throughout tons of different tribes. Um, The most famous that people are aware of is the two spirits of the Native American tradition. Um, That's a little dicey because of what the two spirit actually are. They are as much of a spectrum as the modern day LGBTQIA community actually is. Uh, you had something as I, – I don't even know how to describe it. You had something very similar to gay men, and then you had something very similar to what we might look at as transgender today, and they fell on both sides of the gender spectrum, and they fell on both sides of the sexual spectrum. And so these mm-hmm. people were highly respected within the community, and when they were also the shaman, they gained even more respect. So – For example, the shaman or the medicine man, as the Native Americans might have called them, the medicine men were really powerful, but the most powerful medicine men fell into the two-spirit category. And so there was always this reserved, special, beneficial role that people like us were playing. And to me, that was just so fascinating. Hmm. Now, could you tell us a little bit, you know, what were your motivations behind writing Garb and Green? (laughs) Um, On a very surface level, my motivations were to give my coven leaders within the tradition an understanding of what they could or couldn't talk about outside of the tradition. Uh, A lot of people in Wicca really struggle with the secrecy of the oaths and what you're not allowed to talk about versus what you are allowed to talk about. You know, and I don't really, I don't believe that we should be creating divisions amongst all the various different groups. I know that there are certain things that need to be secret for the integrity of the groups. I know that there are things that need to be maintained as secret so that people feel comfortable and are protected. And I I don't want to get in the way of that. But my theory has always been if it's public, if you can find it on the Internet, if you can find it in a book, it's free for you to talk about whether or not you like your teacher thought it was unfound or secretive or not. As long as somebody could realistically be expected to find it somewhere, you can talk about it. And so uh, at first I published the book because I wanted to give my my high priest all of this knowledge and wisdom that they could pass on and work with people who wanted to see what we do but who didn't want to get initiated or who weren't ready to make a commitment to a coven. 
and I just kind of wanted to get a feel for what Gala's brand of witchcraft might look like. Um, but after I started writing it, I realized it wasn't an internal document. I realized that it was really more along the lines of something that needed to be public. And the reason I started to look at that is because a lot of a lot of gay men were approaching me, even before I started Gala, they had been approaching me about British traditional witchcraft or initiatory Wicca, which I'm trained in, and how heteronormative they believed it to be, and how they really truly felt isolated from that structure, which I thought was unfortunate because it's so beautiful. And there's real power in it, and I didn't want them to deprived of something that authentic and powerful and that that historically beautiful. I didn't want them to feel like there was yet again another religion that didn't embrace them or another spiritual path that relegated them to the sidelines. And so I started to look at some of the stuff that I studied in my philosophy degree and I started to look at some of the stuff that I had been teaching the guys in my own coven. And I was like, you know, this is really valuable for gay men regardless of what their magical path is because at the end of the day if it does nothing else if all it does is empower them and make them feel like they have a purpose again then it's worth it so realistically the whole reason that I published it was twofold give my guys the ability to talk to people and help them make their lives better through that conversation and then ultimately just to enrich the lives of people and give us back a sense of purpose. Hmm. One topic that you stress in the book are the, um, is the importance of the gay male mysteries um, in, in, um, and, and that they're separate from, but uh, work in cooperation with the male mysteries. What can you tell us? about the gay male mysteries. What do you say to that listener that says, well, well, what does that really mean? Yeah, right? Okay. Um, so what does it mean? You know, we all know about the female mysteries. We all have this understanding. Whether we only know it intellectually or only have passed mm-hmm. upon it as a cursory glance, we all sort of know what the female mysteries are doing. But nobody ever knows what I mean when I say the male mysteries. And then when I go even further and talk about the gay mysteries, They're like, okay, come on. So the female mysteries teach women about the nature of their body and the power that their bodies can produce. And they talk about life and they talk about, they talk about sustaining life. They talk about the ability to bleed and avoid death, but nobody ever really thinks about what power the male body produces. And so the male mysteries start out with defining what the male body can do as an overarching concept. But, you know, a lot of people really struggle with homosexuality in modern Western society, and there's just no way you're going to convince a straight man who is 100% straight, red-blooded American male straight, that the male mysteries are homoerotic because he just won't participate in them. And, that's unfortunate, but it's a, it is an unfortunate reality. And so I had to contend with that. And I had to leave a piece of the male mystery untouched by a gay male tradition. 
So I, I kind of like pigeonholed what I do into the gay male mysteries. And what the gay male mysteries are doing, and for the record, that was completely fabricated. I believe there's really only the male mysteries and the female mysteries and what the male body and the female body are doing. But for the sake of not toppling the apple cart, I created a subset of the male mysteries in order to talk about this and be able to sit at the table with straight male witches without offending them. And so what the gay male mysteries, as I identify them, are doing is understanding what the male body is doing energetically, understanding what the male body is doing biologically, and then understanding how those two things are operating in tandem with each other and how they're operating when you pair two male bodies together. Because within the traditional British initiatory Wicca structure, you've got all of this talk about polarity, and you've got all this talk about the internal plumbing of the witch and whether or not an initiation is going to stick. And yeah, I'm okay with you being gay, but for the purposes of the ritual, you're going to have to kind of put that on hold and operate as a high priest, not a gay man. And that can be really damaging for a lot of gay men. So wanting, jumping back to your other question, wanting to give them something authentic that I had been taught and not just something I had created, but something authentic that has been passed down to me. I looked at what we were doing in initiatory Wicca and I said, you know, we're wrong. We're dead wrong. There's no reason that this polarity stuff has to be this big a problem. It works the way we're saying it works and there's no reason to change a system that's working. But the problem is it's leaving too many people out and if we don't embrace the people we're leaving out, Wicca's going to eventually die out. And I love the religion too much to let it die out. So I looked at why we're wrong. And I started to analyze what the male body is doing when it gets together with another male body and how you modify very traditional structured things in order to create the energetic currents that need to be created to raise and produce the power. Does that make sense? It does. It does, absolutely. Um, and it, it kind of leads into another question. Um, you mentioned polarity, and yeah. um, polarity, of course, is, is in many systems of spirituality and magic, polarity is, is, is stress in, in Kabbalah, in, in, in Tantra, in uh, Hermetics, all these systems um, stress the importance of polarity. And I thought it was fascinating in Garbed in Green where you decoupled magical polarity from gender and um, shared with us the terms um, production versus seduction as a model of spiritual slash magical energetic polarity. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, first, I didn't create the concept. Um, Baudrillard, who is a French philosopher from the 80s, 70s and 80s, really kind of hit that point home in his book, Seduction, which is in the bibliography for my book. Um, and he said the two polarizing forces within modern society and even just within the metaphysical world as we understand it are seduction and production, or what the, what the older occultists would call magnetic versus electric. And so I had a lot of vocabulary 
that was not male, female, or masculine, feminine, in order to be able to discuss this topic. And I really got tired of hearing about it being male and female, because that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about polarity. We're really not. We're talking about opposites, not complementaries. And when you're talking male, female, you're talking a, a complement. You're talking two things that work in tandem with each other. When you're talking polarity, you're talking the positive and the negative of a battery. And these two things have to be in direct opposition to each other. Well, the male and female can never be in direct opposition to each other and actually produce any real current of power. So it's been useful for us in our 1950s mindset, Wicca, to say it's male and female, those are the opposites. But what, what this wonderful exploration of gender has done is it's shown us just how narrow that construct is and why it doesn't work. And so I wanted to get away from the male and the female. Now, I don't want to get away from the god and the goddess. I think those are two universal concepts that are really representative of these two opposite structures, which sounds odd because I just said the male and the female are not opposites. They're complementary. But the god and the goddess are not functioning like a physical male and a physical female. They are functioning more, in, at least in the branches of Wicca that I've been exposed to, they are functioning more as poles of a battery, the hot and the cold, the ice and the fire, the positive and negative, the magnetic and electric. They're functioning more along those lines than along the lines of heteronormative sex. And when I started to look at some of these things, I really wanted to create a structure that was inclusive. And I, I always struggle to use that word. It's become a buzzword for so many people. But I wanted to be as inclusive of various different types of sexuality, of gender, of sex. And these three things are diverse. They're not conjoined the way we generally talk about them. Somebody's physical sex could be male, while their gender could be something else. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're transgender or they're gay or they're straight or they're whatever else we want to label them as. And so my really very shallow and cursory review of polarity was just to get us thinking in a different concept and to get us thinking in a different construct so that somebody with a little bit more wherewithal on this topic than me could pick up where I left off. Does that answer your question? Yes, and it, it's probably provoking <laughs> many more. That's okay. Which I'm is here. Good. We can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I guess really where my mind is going uh, with this is um, back to Gala Witchcraft. And I really don't know anything about it. Uh, I read your book, but I, I – I, your book doesn't come across as Gala Witchcraft 101 at all. So no. it's kind of this um, mystery. Um, but hearing <laughs> you talk, I'm, I'm sensing that Gala's roots uh, or ha Gala has roots in um, uh, Wicca, uh, uh, British traditional witchcraft. 
Um, but I, you know, I feel like I'm just extrapolating, and I and I think I, I'm doing you a disservice. I, I should ask you, what can you tell us about Gala witchcraft? Okay, so let's make a distinction between Casey and Gala. So I, Casey, have British tradition roots. I was trained in a coven in Pennsylvania in a lineage that, or my coven came off of one of Civil League's covens. And I went through the degrees with that coven, and I learned all these wonderful things. And my teacher was really lovely and is really lovely and is actually very instrumental in helping me build Gala to what it has become. Um, so I, Casey, have British traditional training. Gala is not British traditional witchcraft or what another, another group of people might call initiatory witchcraft. We are not that because we do not initiate cross-gender lines. So basically what that means is we don't go female, male, male, uh, female, male, female, male. We don't go down the line like that. Instead, in Gala, we initiate male-to-male, and immediately that takes you out of British traditional witchcraft. Um, What I can say is, at no point in the development of Gala did I ever want to create something new. I really wanted to give gay men something substantial, and I wanted them to have something that had history and morphic resonance. I wanted them to have something that stood on the shoulders of giants, but was authentic to what we as gay men experience in our mundane lives and, and that would be useful for healing some of the damage that we experience in our mundane lives. And so I took what I learned in that coven that was very BTW and I sat down with my teacher and I analyzed it and I asked questions and I said, why does this have to be the way that it is? Is there another way to do this? And after we started to really break things down and I started to ask some pointed questions and I really thought things through a little bit, I realized there was a way to do it that was still respectful of the traditions that I have come from but would produce something authentic, powerful, and unique. And so that's really where Dallas started. Now, it has grown beyond my wildest dreams. Um, it started in 2014 with the initiation of four first degrees into my coven. That coven has since grown to become a tradition. And we, we currently have people running groups all across the country. And I'm just fascinated by how quickly it's grown and by the, the support that I've gotten from my students, students and from the initiatory line all the way up and all the way down. And so what Gala is really trying to do in a nutshell is recognize the witch as an archetypal concept, not so much just British or just European, but universal. And what we're trying to really do is reclaim those magical practices that gay male priests, shamans, medicine men, witches, would have been using before Christianity and patriarchy erased us from history. And that's really what Gal is trying to do. It built its base off of a British traditional-like structure. I say like because, once again, we are not BTW. I don't want to offend anybody. But 
we are very much within that civil leak style of witchcraft. And we're building our, our base off of that. And then adding in the other things that people recover through shamanic journey, through research, through experimentation, through working with the land spirits, through a bunch of other things that, you know, witches do. And we're trying to build a cohesive tradition that is not English or German or Italian or Chinese or African or anything, but universal. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, thank um, you. Where do I sign up? Um <laughs> And, and, and I, you know, and really I, I say that, you know, yeah, I'm trying to be funny. Um, but, um, you know, you're talking about, you're talking about it with such passion. You're talking about something that I had longed for, for a very long time, uh, until I had the good fortune of, of discovering unnamed path. And it, it, yeah. it filled that need that I had to, cause I knew that my queerness was an essential part of my power as a magical individual. And that was the message I kept getting from the spirit guides. That's the message I kept getting from deep down inside. And when I discovered unnamed path, it was this aha moment. Oh my gosh, this is, I'm not crazy for having these feelings. There's, there's other people, this, this is a truth. This is, this is something that, that resonates with, with many folks. So, I mean, and I think it's delicious um, the work that you're doing and it. I, I, I've coined the phrase, um, I hope no one's offended, but um, uh, the queer spiritual Renaissance, because it, yeah. it, what I'm seeing is so many people all over the world are tapping into what was, what was, lost and what was driven underground um and and so i'm i'm fascinated um with your work and 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 after reading garbed in green i know i left me thirsting for more and, and the messages i'm getting from listeners it's very obvious that other people are thirsting for more um and i am of course i fully appreciate and, and respect that um you know Gala is, is an initiatory tradition with, you know, there's things you talk about, things you don't talk about. Um, uh, so I'll put it this way. How does someone know if Gala witchcraft, how do you know if Gala witchcraft is right for you? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. you, know, what, yeah. you know, what information can you give people if someone's feeling, gee, this might be right for me? Um, how does someone, you know, know if, if this might be the right path for them? Okay, so this is just a personal opinion. Um, but my theory has always been, it's kind of like going to work. You know, you can love or hate your job based on the people you're with. And even the worst job can be wonderful if the people you work with are great. So that's a weird mm. way to start this. But I think that the most important thing you want to look at is, do you like the person who's initiating you or who might be initiating you, can you see yourself building this bond of mutual respect and love? We in Wicca call that perfect love and perfect trust. It's an ideal, 
rarely does any two groups of people actually have perfect love and perfect trust, but you're always striving for it. And so the first question you should begin asking is, what do I need to do to vet this person to decide if I can trust them? And if you begin to trust them, can you love them? Now, if you're coming to gala through me, the first thing I would ask you to do is kind of listen to the videos and the phone calls and all of the interviews that are going around the web, like what we're doing right now, and get a feel for my personality and decide if you even want to approach me. And if you do, be really honest with me about where you're coming from. And let me be really probing with my questions to get to the heart of what you're trying to do. And then put me through the ringer too. Let's not stand on principle and social niceties. Let's get to the meat of the potatoes, the meat and the potatoes of this situation, and let's dive in. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to be upset because two people didn't get along. Um, above and beyond that, I would ask if, if you agree with everything in my book, if you do, you probably don't need me. <laughs> I would rather you not agree with me. I would rather you have mm. questions and say, listen, this was a dicey little bit of stuff you did here, and I saw what you did. So let's talk about that. And then let's have a real philosophical discussion about it that's based in mutual respect for each other and based in intellectual discourse for a desire to get to the heart of the matter. Because I am aware that I've said some controversial things, but I'm also aware that those controversial things need to be said and people need to start talking about them. So once again, standing on principles isn't going to help anybody. There's no reason to be delicate. But as I said, that perfect love and perfect trust thing really does run its way all the way through Wicca. If you're looking to be initiated, you really do have to be striving for a perfect love and a perfect trust with the people that are initiating you. Um, if you love everything in my book, the book is set up so that you can use it any way you want and that you can build your own magical practice off it and you can grow from there. Um, if you feel like I'm wrong, which God bless you, you know, like absolutely think I'm wrong. If you feel like I'm wrong in that in either way, like either, no, I think coming to Dallas because I agree with your book completely is the right way to go in case you're wrong. Or, no, I, I actually think you got this wrong and I need to correct you. <laughs> Either way you go, if you think I'm wrong, it's worth having a discussion about because you may find that you come home. You may find that this is the right path for you regardless of what I think. You may find that you really want to discuss these things and be amongst other like-minded individuals who can share ideas and have respect for each other and disagree. And that's really important. I think to get those two pieces down initially is really important. Then the question you should ask yourself is, can I see beyond Wicca's history? Wicca was a religion that was really codified between the 50s and the 70s. And it has a lot of roots that are a product of that era. 
But that's not necessarily what Wicca is. That's interpretive Wicca. That's somebody's interpretation of Wicca. That's a 1950s interpretation of Wicca or a 1960s or 70s interpretation of Wicca. So if we just haven't grown beyond, because it works, because a lot of people get value out of it. And so if it isn't broken, don't fix it was the motto. But now, if you feel outside of that structure, but you like what I wrote in Garbed in Green, can you move beyond it? Can you see Wicca for what it actually is as opposed to the brand or what I'm selling you as Wicca? Can you see beyond Casey's view of Wicca into something that is really, truly authentic for you? Are you willing to throw yourself into actual occult study? Are you willing to look at yourself with a really, really hard eyeball and go, this is what's wrong with my life, but I don't know how to fix it. And I know I need help. And then finally, are you willing to admit that in the gay community we're broken? Because if what the gay community offers you through apps like Grindr or Scruff or any of the other websites that we go to to hook up, if that works for you, then that's great. You found your community, but Gala doesn't have anything to offer you. If that doesn't work for you and you admit that we are broken and that there is a way to fix it, like it's not nihilistic, but there is a way to fix it. And you believe based on all of your other research that Wicca, real Wicca, not Casey's version of Wicca or Gardner's version of Wicca or Sybil Leak's version of Wicca, but real Wicca, the Wicca that all of us are interpreting would be the way to help you. Then at that point, there's something to discuss. And I would recommend finding me on Facebook and having a conversation with me. I would recommend emailing me. I would recommend just reaching out and touching base with me in any of the ways that, you know, you have access to. And I put all of my social media in the back of the book so that you can reach me. Casey, thank you for that (laughs) wonderful, delicious answer. (laughs) Um, I want to uh, make some time for some listener questions um, before getting back to uh, questions that I have, because my listeners are very important. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) And the first listener question is, uh, so when's your next book coming out? (laughs) you know it's funny you bring that up I don't know I do know that there's another book there was a lot that I left out of Garbed and Green Um, I have a a goal to write one book a year at least Um, I'm working on the next one I have at least two publishers interested in it but I just haven't I haven't really codified when I'm going to do it Um, but I'm thrilled that you guys want to know. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's yeah, it's it's a good problem when when readers are are thirsting for more. Um, and then also, is there going to be an audio edition of Garbed in Green? You know, that's funny. Um, I actually really considered it, but 
you know, like a lot of gay men, I don't like my voice. <laughs> so short of me reading it, I don't know who would do it. Um, I'm not opposed to an audio edition. Uh, I just don't want to hear it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have a very nice voice. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Are there plans for a podcast series oh, for gosh. delving more deeply <laughs> into the material? Wow. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about a podcast. I, I love what you guys do so much. Like your podcast, I spent a good three days listening to your podcast. <laughs> I just oh, wow. love what you guys do. I love what what Buck is doing over in Australia. I love what the Unnamed Path has been doing. I used to listen to Hyperion back before he passed. Um, oh. So the Unnamed Path is very special to me. Um, I had never really thought about a podcast for the same reason I hadn't thought about an audio book, but I'm not opposed <laughs> to that either if that's something people really want. And I would be more than happy to talk about things from Garbed and Green in something like a podcast. Hmm. And then um, uh, another listener question, and I think that, I get the sense this listener uh, did a little bit more research than than I. Um, <laughs> how do Gala witchcraft courses relate to gay male mysteries? And maybe oh. you already covered some of that as, as, in you know earlier in, in our conversation. Okay, how, so that's an interesting question. Because I don't, I don't really teach with courses within the tradition. Um, that's a bit of the BTW stuff that comes back through, through gala. The pieces of my training that I really loved and I thought were really useful, I really don't set it up as an academic thing. I know Garfield Green is really academic, but I, I don't set it up as academic. What what being in gala is like, okay, first I'm a cancer. So you have to understand that as a cancerian male, I'm very harsh and home. And so when I have the coven over, I probably cook like it's Thanksgiving dinner. And everybody brings something for the potluck. And we all gather together and laugh and joke and hug each other and drink wine and just have a grand old time. And then we do ritual and then we eat, you know? And so it really is very social being in gala. Um, the wisdom kind of comes through osmosis by being involved in the group and asking questions and then having those questions answered. Um, mm -hmm. That said, I do teach long distance, and in the long distance training program, which I guess could be considered the Gala course if we're going to go that route, I am a bit more academic because you have to have a structure when you're talking to people over the Internet or over the phone. Otherwise, they get lost because you can't have that social interaction on a weekly or monthly basis, and so you kind of have to give them a template by which to interact with you. And so in that situation – what I generally will tend to do is meet the student where they're at and attempt to modify the social dynamic as well as possible and add in future lessons based on what that student is interested in to get a feel for who they are, 
to get a feel for where they're at and to get a feel for what they want from gala so that when they're through with the dedication period and they become a first degree, that they they are they're coming home. They feel welcome. They feel like we've been in the same room for hours on end just shooting the shit. Excuse my French. But like they, they, they <laughs> feel welcomed. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as far as the gay mysteries go, the way that I sort of help people navigate that in gala is I look at how the gay community has damaged them or damaged me. I'm very honest and garbed and green about what I have gone through and what the gay community has kind of done and how I have been complicit in the doing of that. Um, I'm very honest about the fact that I was raped in the gay community and that I struggled with that and that I have had to overcome some of those things. And so I sort of will vacillate between using my own personal experience of damage and whatever they're struggling with in order to empathize with them. And then from that struggle, we'll, we'll, we'll grow out of that. And I'll, I'll look at them or I'll talk to them or whatever the circumstance will let me do. I'll engage them in some way. And I'll ask them what they wish it could have been and how they would like to see it change. And then, based on what their desire is, I have something to teach them from the occult history that I understand and from theosophy or from what I learned in Wicca or a witchcraft ritual or anything that I have been given by my initiator and by my lineage that will be useful to them. And so it really is a process of becoming And it really is a process of engaging each other. But as as far as like how the gay mysteries show up in gala, I think the biggest way that they do is in the understanding of how you navigate coven dynamics outside of the stereotypical gay archetypes. Like that a twink and a bear can be friends. And not look down on each other. There's somebody who is 21 and somebody who is 62 can be friends. And that the 62-year-old can gain wisdom from the 21-year-old. Or that the 21-year-old can show respect to the 62-year-old and gain wisdom from him. Like all of those artificial constructs that we have as gay men within mundane gay society just seem to disappear in the face of the magic. And so each person has to navigate the reality of that for themselves and overcome their own damage to do it. And I think that's where the gay mysteries begin to take hold in gala. Hmm. And we have a listener who asks, have you ever thought of collaborating with Andrew Raymer? Oh, no, I haven't. Um, Honestly, I love his work. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I only published my book in January, and I still have this unhealthy habit of not thinking of myself as an author. (laughs) So um, it doesn't even occur to me that I would even be able to approach somebody like that. But I'm really honored that you put me in the same category. (laughs) 
Um, and then uh, in our conversation, uh, I, I, I have a couple questions. So I'm, I'm assuming uh, is uh, gala, um, are there three degrees as there are in, um, you know, most forms of, of Wicca? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I can absolutely answer that. So, you know, over time you've heard me say repeatedly in this conversation from the, the traditions that have been passed down to me. Um, mm-hmm. I was very fortunate that my teacher knows the vast wealth of knowledge that he knows and that he is as well-connected as he is. Um, one of the one of the traditions that came down to us in our coven is another tradition that comes off of Sybil Leak called Sacred Pentagraph. And there was a book back in 2015, Sacred Pentagraph by Tarot Star. It's phenomenal. I view it to be Wicca grown up. And what I have what I did with Gala was I looked at what Tarot Star wrote. And I said, oh, my God, that's brilliant. And because it's part of my lineage, I incorporated it. And I said, we're going to eliminate some of this stuff that really bogs down Wiccan covens and Wiccan traditions. And we're going to authentically as Wicca as we can, but we're going to put things in to help us. And so what you have when you come into Gala is a really interesting process. You start out. As a, as a seeker, and you, you vet me. You get to decide whether I'm a good teacher for you or I'm somebody you even want to be connected to through initiation. And I do the same thing with you. And after both of us agree that it's a good fit, and after the coven got to meet you, because that's the important piece. You have to get along with me. I have to get along with you. But you also have to fit into the coven. And the coven gets a vote. I don't believe that the era of man are born high priest or high priestess is something we should continue. I really believe that covens need to be democratic on the, on the terrestrial running of the group and not monarchical. Cause I don't like that word, but down running on the spiritual side of things. So the high priest, handles tending the coven. The high priest handles keeping the heart of the coven beating. He handles making sure we stay on track, making sure that everything is flowing the way it's supposed to, that we we are honoring the gods and the goddesses at the right times, and that we are doing all of these things that we need to do, that we are doing our Sabbaths and our Esbats in the right way according to the Book of Shadows. But On the terrestrial level, the coven is run by a council. And this is directly from Tarot Star. This is directly from Sacred Pentagraph. And so the coven council is made up of initiated members who could be the high priest but don't have to. And as long as they are initiated, they can be on the council. So in my personal coven, I'm the high priest, but there is a president, a scribe, and a treasurer who are all three different people within the coven. And they get to decide the way we go on a terrestrial level. Everybody in the coven gets a vote on your members. So you decide you want to come in 
and you get to decide if we're right for you. If you do think we're right for you, we put it up to a coven vote, and if everybody agrees that it's a good fit, we plan a first degree. Or I'm sorry, we plan a dedication for you. I got ahead of myself. When you dedicate, it's a chance to really dive deeper into what we're offering. It's a chance to understand things. We're going to talk about your psychic skill set. We're going to talk about general Wicca 101 stuff. We're going to talk about astrology. We're going to talk about various sundry bits of magic that might be interesting to you. And we're going to get to know each other. And we're going to build a bond of love and trust. When that happens, you as the dedicant ask for a first degree. If the high priest or the initiator, which are sometimes the same person but not always, agrees that you are ready, a date is set for your first degree. And you can stop there. And in Gala, we have this wonderful thing where you can either stay in a coven or become what we call a hedge witch and kind of go a more solitary path only coming to Grand Coven once a year. But the rest of the year, you do your own thing. And Grand Coven for us is very much like what Stone and Stang is for you guys or what a Gardnerian Gather would be for them. So you come to Grand Coven. The rest of the time you go home, you do stuff with your Book of Shadows or in your own personal practice, and, you know, Bob's your uncle. Or you decide... I really like this coven thing and the people in the coven are so close to me and I feel so connected to them. It feels like I've come home and I I could never imagine doing this without them. At which point you stay in the coven and you grow together as a group and you get a vote just like everybody else got a vote. So for some people, the first degree is as far as they go, which is perfect. I say to myself, my, my initiated witches all the time. Please do not go on to a second degree if you don't want to be of service to other people. Because the first degree is where you go to learn about yourself. It's where you develop your own personal connection to the gods. It's where you decide for you what's right. But the second degree is somebody who has really kind of uncovered that and really appreciated that and mastered the tools of the art and wants to help somebody else do all of those things. And so the second degree is an apprentice to the high priest. He becomes a high priest himself, but he is an apprentice to the high priest. And in being an apprentice, he learns how to tend the hearth fires of the coven. He learns how to keep the coven functioning on a spiritual level. And he learns what the roles, limitations, and responsibilities are. A third degree is somebody who does all the things that a second does, but wants to experience transcendent sexuality with another gay man and wants to overcome all of the drama that we have in gay society where we, we survive in hookup culture and we drink it like fish drink water. And that second going into third degree wants to overcome that he wants to heal from that he wants to be able to help other people heal from that and so what winds up happening is he begins to look for his working partner in Garnerian you have this concept or in traditional witchcraft you have this concept of a working partnership where a man and a woman come into the coven together they work together they're paired up together they work sex magic together and they generate the power and raise it. 
I wanted to produce something like that for gay men. But it was really important to me that it, we not be, like, digmatized about it, that we not sit here and go, oh, Billy's really cute. I want him to be my working partner now. Or Sam has a really big dick. I want him to be my working partner. I wanted to get rid of that because that's so pervasive in the gay community, and it undermines so much of who we are and how we interact with each other. And so the second degree who wants to go on to the third degree has to find that working partner, engage that working partner, go through a ritual to confirm that they are that to each other. And it has to be done before the elders. And in doing it before the elders, it also has to be proven. And they have however long it takes to prove it. But they have to go through the process for at least a year. And at the end of that year or longer, it could be five years or 10 years or 15 months. At the end of that time period, if the elders agree that that coupling really is healthy and is valuable and is powerful and is producing good magic, then they are given the third degree ritual with the elders. Now, I keep mentioning these elders. And you, you will introduce me as chief elder of this tradition. So this is, the, this is the really interesting democratic part of GALA. At the top, GALA is run as a democracy. I am chief elder because I am first among equals. I do not run over this like some witch king or queen. I am merely a voice in the chorus. And so what you have is me as chief elder functioning as the high priest of the tradition and the elder council, all these other people who have made it past the third degree, all these people who have given up for the running of covens in order to become, third, to become these elders, they get to run the terrestrial part of the tradition. They get to oversee the functionality of the tradition, and I get to keep us on track. And so no one role is better or worse. Nobody's above or below anybody. The degrees are not status symbols. Um, they, the further up you go, the more of service you're going to be. I, as chief elder, am the most servile of all of us. I am responsible to every member within GALA to the best of my ability. And I am responsible for doing everything that needs to be done to secure the integrity of the tradition and to put my own ego in abeyance for the good of the group. And so over and over and over again within GALA, there are these tests to make sure that you're prepared and they're natural tests. They're not like sit down and, take this SAT. They're natural tests that the tradition puts people through in order to determine whether they're ready for the next role or not. Now, I'm, I'm curious, the um, working partners, are, is this coupling, are they typically life partners as well outside of the sphere of the coven? Well, they can be, right? So that's the cool thing. So with gay people, you know, you really can't 
you can't pigeonhole gay relationships any more than you can pigeonhole straight relationships. And life is messy. So you're going to have some people who come in and dedicate who are already married, and they're in monogamous relationships. You're going to have some people who come in, they're already married, and they're polyamorous. You're going to have some people who come in, and all they desperately want is somebody to love them, and they can't find it. And you're going to find other people who fall somewhere on the spectrum in between that. So you have to account for all of those possibilities in these working pairs. And some gay relationships being monogamous will not accept a sexual relationship outside of their relationship. So these working pairs have to be able to function in a way that doesn't put somebody in jeopardy of losing their personal relationship. And so the way I define it for people in gala is the only thing that's required of the working pairs is a a demonstration of perfect love and perfect trust in action on a regular basis. And all acts of love and pleasure are acceptable recourse for you to demonstrate that. So if that means that you are in a polyamorous relationship and it, it allows you to have sex outside of the relationship and you want to have sex with this person, then you can. If you and your partner are monogamous, but he comes into gala with you and you two want to be the work towards that working pair relationship, you absolutely can. A polyamorous couple could have two partners who come in and one who doesn't, and they could be partners within gala or not. And so it really is as diverse as the people who are going to make it up. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm very impressed and, and, fascinated because I'm, I'm getting a sense that within uh, what you have been building that you're coming into this with a lot of understanding of group dynamics and, and a lot of energy has been put into creating a framework um, to help people work together, to help build and maintain that community. Well, we need that. You know, like one of the reasons that I deviated from more traditional models of Wicca, and I really kind of took my cue from Tarot Star and Charmaine Day and Civil League, was because a minor, small group of like, say, three people, and and for the record, that can be the most powerful group in the world. I'm not minimizing it by calling it minor. Sometimes three people working in tandem together can move mountains where 50 people working together cannot. Um, But for gay men who Christmas that time of year is so dangerous and they hang themselves or they commit suicide or they suffer depression, a small group like that may not be sufficient to meet their emotional needs. And so I knew I needed to create an overarching tradition that would embrace kind of being like family. I hesitate to use the word family because it's so looked down upon in religious circles. Um, But for gay men, that's really kind of an essential word because we've been kicked out of our families. Now, I'm very lucky. I have a mother who would move heaven and earth for me and – My family loves me. But, you know, 
I'm the middle child of five, and when my mom dies, my brothers and sisters have children of their own and in-laws, and they're going to go and scatter to the winds, and we may not see each other every holiday. And then, you know, we're alone. Gay men find themselves constantly having to fear being alone. And so when I was looking at the most dangerous points in gay men's lives, the holidays, Um, In America, Thanksgiving and Christmas and the New Year are really dangerous. 30. 30 is dangerous. We even go so far as to call it gay death. If you're trying to continue to date beyond 30 and you're 29, you're living in fear that you're never, ever going to get sex again. If If all you have is the normal gayborhood club scene mentality. 50 seems to be dreadful and it only gets exponentially worse the further and further you go beyond 50 if you're talking about the standard gay community now i don't think that's true when you add pagan in i also don't think that's true as it actually exists but it is a it is a myth that we have perpetuated within the neighborhoods, within boys town within the club scene in the bars and on the apps and the hookup sites like, I know some people who have been told that they're too old to be on Grinder, and that they should just go die. And they have told me this, because on Grinder, I'm very public about the fact that I published a book, and I'm like, ask me about it. Because I'm hoping that if you ask me about it, we'll get into a conversation that's better than how big's your dick, you know? And so, when I look at the things that really upset gay men, and the things that cause us the most damage... It's this sense of isolation from the nuclear family, that there's no role, that there's no pathway, that there's no progress to be made, and that after you're no longer pretty or you never were pretty, you have no value. And I I, I hate that. So I deviated from the idea that covens were autonomous for the sole reason that gay men needed a larger group. They needed a larger sense of belonging. It has nothing to do with Wicca as much as it has to do with, I think it's what's necessary for gay men to heal. And Tarot Star made a really good argument for why an elder council overseeing autonomous covens thing for Wicca to develop. And it just seemed to fit so well with what we as gay men needed that I had no choice but to acknowledge it. Hey, Did Tim, one guys? more question? No, not at <laughs> <Yeah>. all. No, <laughs> Dead air is bad, but that's what I'm, I'm absorbing what you're saying. Um, <laughs> and and it is, I'm listening very keenly. Um, uh, this has been wonderful. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to ask one more question uh, sure. before we start wrapping things up. Um Garbed in Green is fascinating, and towards the end, there are some exercises and rituals um, that readers can can pull out of it and, and integrate into their practice. One thing that was fascinating to me, you go to great lengths to talk about um, bull roarers and how to make a bull roarer, and maybe I skipped over something, but... Um, I have seen references. For some reason, I want to say it was in uh, Robert Graves, The White Goddess. But 
what is the significance of the bull roar in particular to um, us? To us? Um, and I don't know if I put this in garbed in green or not. It's been, it's, honestly, everything's kind of a jumble right now. Um, within Aboriginal Australian culture, there is a rite of passage where a young boy becomes a man. And that rite of passage is intimately connected to the bull roarer. And in that language, the translation would be, our translation of that ritual's title would be the bull roarer ceremony. And it is a ceremony where the young boy is inseminated by an older male warrior. Um, I really struggled with pieces of that in writing Garbed in Green, but I, I, made a conscious, I made a conscious choice to publish this through Amazon so I wouldn't be censored. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with how much of the male mysteries and the history of homosexuality is also deeply pedophilic. Um, and I say that, and I don't want to be taken out of context for that, but I'm not comfortable with that. Um, it was a very different time, and these these people were in culture that embraced them and helped them grow as young boys into adult malehood, and they had a spiritual component to these things, and it wasn't psychologically damaging for them the way that it would be today. And so... What I, con- what I constantly say whenever I bring this kind of stuff up is just because they say it was an older man and a younger man back then doesn't mean there is an equivalent in the way that we do it today. You still have to abide by the laws of the land. You still have to accept that it may be improper for a 56-year-old to sleep with a 14-year-old. That, that's, that's illegal. Um, but it may also be improper for a 56-year-old to sleep with a 19-year-old. The life experiences are just so vastly different. And we throw our young boys to the wolves. We don't, we don't educate them on the proper ways to be male. We give them a toxic masculinity. We make them feel shame about their desires, and we belittle them for the, for the power that they can raise, and we try to minimize that. And so even though back in the day with the bull roar ceremony where this older man would initiate this younger man, it was so vastly different. Um, The way I look at it today is the authentic way to honor that type of a ritual is the wiser of the two initiates the novice. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And so somebody who's like 22 but really wise and very very ancient in his wisdom might be initiating a 54-year-old. Mm-hmm. And it would still fit the category of what's going on. But so the context of that, that horror is because it is one of the few remaining rituals in anthropology that is openly homosexual, openly accepting of gay men embracing each other and, and hasn't been whitewashed and hasn't been made heteronormative. 
And so I wanted to honor the performer for that piece of it because without that particular Aboriginal wisdom, so much would have been lost. Casey, thank you so much for Mm -hmm. taking this time and also for doing the work that you're doing. Um, You have an audience who are eager for your next book. And um, thank you. I'm I'm love I'm loving what I'm hearing about the Gala witchcraft tradition, and um, I apologize to you um, when some of my folks, um, some of my fellow, particularly fellow uh, initiates, started reading your book and came to me were so excited about it, and I poo pooed them and I said, oh. You know, oh, oh, yeah, he's talking about, yeah, yeah, you know, the cross-dressing priest in Mesopotamia. I mean, that's nothing new. Everyone knows about that. I'm like, uh, and finally, I I broke down and read your book, and I'm glad that I did. Um, and I, it's just me being honest that I I I had to get past my own bias um, in the beginning. Very glad that I did. And thank you for the work that you're doing because it's so important. Now is the time and you're helping to heal, uh, you know, our people and our people have so much to offer the world um, at this crossroads that we're at now on this planet. So thank you very, very much. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you for sending in your questions. Um, keep doing that. Any future topics that you want to hear us cover, please let us know because, you know, Michael and I are doing this for you. You know, we hope that this show is nourishing you guys and inspiring you on your journeys. Mm-hmm. Huh. And if you have any ideas, if you, any, sorry, if you have anyone you would like us to interview, any books you think we should review, uh, please send us an email at walkingthenlingpath at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash walkingthenlingpath. Um, yes. Thank you again, Casey, for you know joining us today. Uh, thank you, Matthew, for arranging the interview. And thank you both. <laughs> Have a wonderful rest of the weekend, and um, we'll have to do this again. I would like that. I'm going to go ahead and play us out with some Alexander James Adams, uh, Dance of Hoof and Horn. Uh, It has been a pleasure uh, sharing this time with you both, and look forward to talking to you again, Matthew, soon. Yeah. Thank you, Michael, and yeah, I love you guys, and love to our listeners, and until next time, (laughs) take care.
she's ready. Shadow lit and so long seen. Safe eyes so wide and steady. Raises up his answer, and searches breathing. Rises from his forest bed with blood that's hot and seething.
Tonight. 